and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our deputy editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting primary care. Coming up, we're talking about last week's RCGP annual conference, in particular the details of the college's manifesto to save general practice and the Labour Party's reaction to it. We're looking ahead to what might happen to the GP contract in England as we come towards the end of the current five-year deal. And we're discussing online access to patient records, a contractual requirement in England which is due to come into effect next week. Our good news story this week is about patient satisfaction with access to general practice, which might be a bit of a surprise that it's in the good news slot. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. So Nick, we were at the RCGP annual conference in Glasgow at the end of last week, where the college launched its general election manifesto, which sets out seven steps to save general practice. Regular listeners may have heard our interview with RCGP Chair Professor Camilla Hawthorne last week, where she discussed some of the things that the manifesto was going to cover. So what exactly is the Royal College of GPs calling for, Nick? The manifesto, as you said, sets out seven steps to save general practice and largely they're demands that reflect long-standing issues for the profession around themes the RCGP has been campaigning on for some time. And there's no question that if they were all delivered, they'd make a positive difference. The first point on the list calls for a national alert system to be set up for general practice, similar to the OPAL system for hospitals. The OPAL or Operational Pressures Escalation Levels system means that hospitals can notify the local healthcare system when they're under major pressure. And crucially, depending on the level of pressure they're at, automatic responses then kick in to try and help stabilise their services. And GPs have long called for something similar in general practice. And the RCGP says there should be a nationally agreed framework setting out how integrated care systems can support practices when they're under major pressure. It's basically a black alert system for GP practices. The college also wants a higher share of the NHS budget spent on general practice. It's currently around 8%. And although the manifesto doesn't mention a figure... The RCGP has said for a long time that it thinks around 11% of NHS funding should come to general practice. So that's probably about the amount that it has in mind. Another ask is around shifting funding to support general practice in deprived areas. We know that GP practices in deprived areas generally have more patients per GP, but receive less funding because of the way the GP funding formula works. And the college says practices in the poorest communities have 14.4% more patients per fully qualified GP, but receive 7% less funding. And the manifesto says, as new funding goes into GP services, more of it should be channeled to practices in areas with higher need. Inevitably, for any list of demands around sorting out general practice, the manifesto calls for action to grow the GP workforce. It points out that the NHS long-term workforce plan says that we need 12,000 more GPs in just under a decade from now. And the college wants to see two things to try and make this happen. One is a new nationally funded scheme to improve GP retention. And the idea here is around protected learning time for GPs at all stages of their careers and fellowships to help newly qualified GPs. And the second thing the college wants to support workforce growth is investment in training capacity in general practice. So 
The workforce plan promised 50% more GP training places by 2031. But that means general practice needs more trainers and crucially larger premises because GP practices are already struggling to accommodate extra staff coming into the profession through schemes like the additional roles reimbursement scheme. Following on from that, the College Manifesto calls for at least a £2 billion investment into general practice infrastructure. So it's largely for premises, but it's also partly technology. Reducing bureaucracy is another long-standing bugbear for general practice and for the RCGP. And the manifesto says GPs spend around a third of their time on unnecessary workload and bureaucracy. And it calls for that to be reduced through cutting back on things like top-down contract requirements and, for example, stopping hospitals dumping work unfairly on general practice. And then the final point in the manifesto is a call to support the GP workforce by making it easier for international medical graduates who complete GP training in the UK to stay here. This is a really crucial point, and it seems like an unbelievably quick win in terms of solutions to the GP workforce crisis. GP training places have been expanded quite fast in recent years to around 4,000 per year now. And a lot of the extra training places have been filled by doctors who are international medical graduates, which means doctors who obtain their first qualification outside the UK. And nearly half of doctors coming through GP training now are in that group. And the college says all of these doctors should be guaranteed automatic permanent residence in the UK to make it easy for them to join the workforce here, rather than having to struggle to extend their visas and find employers to sponsor them, as is currently the case. And that's something that can push them to consider moving elsewhere to work, in which case, obviously, they're lost to the NHS and to general practice in the UK. Um, So taken together, these seven steps would make a big difference to general practice. But obviously delivering them is another thing. Things like sorting visas to help more of the GPs we train stay in the UK, reducing bureaucracy, maybe things like the black alert system and even the calls around a retention scheme all seem doable in fairly short order. But some of the other points, like billions of pounds in premises funding or a big shift in the NHS budget, are obviously things that are going to be far, far harder to persuade any government to go for, however needed they are. What was really interesting about this, so none of that really is particularly controversial. A lot of those things that you mentioned there that are in the manifesto are things that we've actually talked about on the podcast before because they're big themes, big concerns for GPs. We've heard a lot of them in some shape or form before from either the Royal College of GPs or the BMA. At the conference last week, in one of the sessions I was in, Professor Camilla Hawthorne, the RCGP chair, who was on the podcast last week, she said that those seven steps had been developed after lots of consultation with members and discussions within the College Council. She very much made the case that these are the things that really represent what the profession as a whole wants. It's not They're not just things that have been pulled out of nowhere. So it was a real surprise that on day two of the conference, so this is last Friday, the Times newspaper carried a a very forceful, shall we say, opinion piece from Labour Shadow Health and Social Care Secretary Wes Streeting, which basically ripped the manifesto apart. He said it would lead, and I quote, to the managed decline of general practice. In particular, Streeting seemed to take issue with the black alert system, which he said would give GPs the power to turn away patients and deny them health checks they needed. He said this would lead to more patients having to pay to see a doctor effectively, resulting in a two-tier health system, while people who couldn't afford to pay would end up waiting too long to have conditions diagnosed. 
it was a really strongly worded criticism to what quite reasonable asks from the college. Um, as Camilla Hawthorne said on the podcast last week, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, that Opel framework for hospitals, that's been in place for years and years and years. And when they press the button, as it were, it basically tells the local system that they need to have the ambulances elsewhere. GPs are really asking for no more than that. That's what the RCGP wants for primary care. Wes Streeting also said the RCGP was asking for billions of pounds more in funding, but saying nothing about how the money should be spent. But, you know, as you said there, the college was asking for £2 billion to improve infrastructure. It was also talking about addressing sort of inequalities in how funding is distributed. So it's not as if they're asking for a blank cheque, as Mr Streeting put it. I think he has come out and said all of this because there was a report in the Times on the first day of the conference which had a comment from Professor Hawthorne saying that no political party has yet put forward a credible, serious plan for general practice. That wasn't actually in her speech at the conference, but the Times did have that comment and they obviously went to West Street for a response and I think that's what seems to have really annoyed him because he obviously feels that Labour does have a credible plan for general practice. All of this spat, as it were, was discussed at the conference and GPs there and perhaps unsurprised people I spoke to seem to think that the college was right on all of this. Most GPs agreed with what I said earlier, that none of these things in the manifesto were particularly radical or controversial, rather that they're the sort of things that general practice really does need if it's going to survive and hopefully thrive in the future. And hopefully, you know, political parties will take time to listen to the RCGP in the run up to the next general election and take on board some of these suggestions. I think what seems really unfortunate about the way that this manifesto was received and the response that it got from the Labour Party is that GPs have had a, a really tough time in recent years becoming a political football, the sort of pressure around face-to-face appointments and access and so on. And this doesn't bode well in terms of how a potential next government might see the profession and interact with the profession around policy over the coming years. Yeah, definitely. It is a potential concern, isn't it? There were plenty of other interesting points that came up at the RCGP conference. The um, keynote speech from Camilla Hawthorne raised a lot of the concerns the, the manifesto aims to address around underfunding, premises and workforce problems. And she said general practice has been pushed to the brink of an existential crisis by these and other factors. And one of the standout lines from her speech was that the large numbers of new GPs the government has promised to train face starting their careers in a wasteland unless the government does more to keep existing GPs in the workforce. If anybody listening hasn't listened to the interview with Professor Hawthorne, which we we ran last week on the podcast, do have a listen because she does talk about a lot of the things that in that interview that she sort of raised in the speech as well. One of the other presentations that I wrote about was a talk from one of the country's leading disaster response experts, Professor Lucy Easthope, who's a professor in practice of risk and hazard at the University of Durham. She was actually talking to the conference about the recovery from the pandemic. It was really interesting what she was saying. She was basically saying that GPs needed to start thinking thinking about themselves as disaster responders now. And she said they needed to have combat levels of self-care in order to look after themselves while dealing with the fallout for the pandemic. I mean, some of it was a bit depressing, really. It was a bit grim. She suggested that things were going to be quite 
difficult, potentially a long time. She talked about high levels of excess deaths for many years to come, for example, and probably high levels of demand in primary care, which is why she was talking about the importance of self-care. But on a more positive note, she said that one of the things that had really given her hope in all her time doing this work around disaster recovery was a lot of the incredible work that was being done by GPs and their teams in North Kensington in London following the Grenfell disaster a few years ago. And she really paid tribute to them and the work that they'd done to help rebuild communities and the people who had experienced such major trauma in the aftermath of that disaster. Anyone listening who wants to find out a bit more about what went on at the college's conference last week, we were the media partner for that event. So there's lots of news from the event. You can find all of that at gponline.com forward slash RCGP. So do have a look if you're interested. Next up, this year is the final year of the five-year GP contract that saw the introduction of primary care networks, additional roles and a host of other changes in general practice. Contract negotiations between the BMA and NHS England and the government usually get underway at about this point in the year. We already know that there won't be a major overhaul from April because of an upcoming general election next year and because there's only a government funding settlement up until March 2025. So what will happen next? Nick, BMA England GP Committee Chair Dr Katie Bramlstainer was talking about some of this at a recent event we both went to, the Best Practice event a couple of weeks ago. What did she have to say? As you said, general practice is currently in the final year of the five-year contract agreement that started in 2019. So understandably, there's been a lot of speculation about what comes next. There are a number of factors that mean a big change isn't going to happen from next April when the five-year deal times out, though. Uh, You mentioned the upcoming general election, the fact that the NHS is currently in the middle of a three-year funding settlement that ends in 2024-25. So it doesn't have the kind of financial certainty beyond that point that it might need to agree any kind of big shift in how general practice contract works or anything that spans multiple years. So... Dr. Bramall Stainer confirmed some of that, and she said that the contract for next year would likely involve relatively limited changes and short term aspirations. But she also gave a sense of the timescale over which greater changes might be possible. She said that, in her view, particularly if there's a, a change in government at the next general election, as seems increasingly likely, the incoming administration might want to get through a couple of years before it considered any major reform to general practice. So 25, 26 and the following year could be interim years again without major change. And then a bigger change could come sometime from 2028 onwards. There are also a couple of points around the future shape of the GP contract. For next year, the GP committee chair said that practices should think about their aspirations around greater continuity of care. And she hinted that there could be change coming around this in next year's quality improvement targets. So she pointed out that the current Chancellor and former Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt will have some sway in how money is spent on general practice next year. And he's a big fan of continuity of care. So perhaps that's something we'll see more of in next year's contract. In terms of a wider view on how Dr Bramall Stainer sees the contract, she said... One thing she wouldn't be keen to do away with is the idea of a contract in perpetuity, the the contract for life that the current GMS contract effectively is. She said she imagined that many people in government could be keen to bring in a more commercial, time-limited model. And with that in mind, she suggested that her approach 
might be around building off the core of the current deal rather than reimagining it completely from scratch. Interestingly, the other side of the contract negotiations from NHS England, so that you've got the BMA on one side, NHS England and the government on the other, and Dr Amanda Doyle, who is also a GP, but is also NHS England's National Director for Primary Care and Community Services. So she's basically the lead on contract negotiations for NHS England. She was also at that event. And while you were listening in one room to what Dr Katie Bramwell-Stainer had to say, I was sat next door in another room listening to what Dr Amanda Doyle had to say. And in the session I was in, she was also talking about the contract and she also said that from next April it was unlikely to see any big changes but she did actually suggest that changes in 2025-26 could potentially be more significant. She also mentioned there's a consultation on incentive payments for general practice that is going to launch next month in November. So that's going to be looking at things like the QOF obviously and the Investment and Impact Fund which is the incentive scheme payment for primary care networks. And Dr Doyle suggested that the results of that consultation could very well feed into what happens from April 2025. Obviously, it's much too late for any results from that to feed into what's going to happen next April 2024. Anyway, we know, you know, from both the BMA and the RCGP, they've both backed scrapping the quaff with both of them suggesting that there could be more of that money moved into around in either incentivising or supporting better continuity of care. So it seems likely there will be quite a swell of support from the responses to that consultation, arguing for some significant changes on the current incentive schemes we have in place. But obviously, any changes we see from 2025 onwards are going to be really dependent on who wins the next general election and what that new government sees as its priorities when it comes to general practice. You also had a story about what um, Dr. Katie Bramwell-Stainer said about what should happen with the additional roles reimbursement scheme as well. She's got some quite interesting views about how that could work in future, hasn't she? Yeah, so the additional roles reimbursement scheme, which we've, we've talked about previously many times on the podcast, has brought thousands of new staff into general practice in roles that are intended to support and be supervised by GPs. So pharmacists, physios, social prescribers and others. And what Dr. Bramwell Stainer said about this was that she felt the way the scheme currently works should be turned on its head. So often the way staff in these roles are used is that patients are booked directly in for appointments with them without first seeing a GP. So these staff who are not GPs are seeing undifferentiated patients. But Dr. Bramwell Stainer said she felt that these additional roles would work better for general practice and for patients if patients were seen first by a GP and then the GP had the ability to direct those patients to members of the additional roles staff as appropriate. And her view was that that the current model risks fragmenting care and undermining continuity and that if patients saw a GP first, the GP could direct patients to those other members of staff when they're convinced it's appropriate. And she felt that a model like that would place GPs in the, the kind of expert generalist role that they should have within a multidisciplinary team within a general practice system. And she felt that that would be more supportive for GPs because rather than having everyone else in the practice team signposting patients to them, that would be reversed and and patients would be satisfied that they'd seen a, a GP. So continuity would be improved as well because the patient's seeing their GP. She argued that unnecessary repeat appointments that can come from patients seeing additional role staff who are less qualified to manage undifferentiated patients could be cut out. 
And she said that that sort of approach would in some ways be a relief to GPs because the way multidisciplinary teams are configured can be on the basis that GPs should always be operating at the top of their licence, seeing only the sort of toughest cases. And she said that's just not feasible. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's all about almost turning the ALRS upside down and, and moving it to a completely different way of looking at it. It is an interesting way of thinking about it, isn't it? We're talking about the future of the contract here, but there's also been some news about the current contract, the one we're, we're in at the minute. You wrote a story this week about the Royal College of Nursing warning about pay rises for practice nurses this year. This is all tied up to the 6% pay rise, which was recommended for practice staff by the doctors and dentists pay review body. And then the uplift to core funding that we talked about on a recent episode of the podcast that was intended to cover all that. What did the Royal College of Nursing have to say? So earlier this week, the, the RCN and the BMA England GP committee put out a joint statement around funding for general practice staff pay rises and particularly around practice nurses. So they said that not all GP practices can afford to give their staff the pay rise that was promised for this year. And the RCN has called for a further injection of funding to solve that problem. So to explain the background, the government announced in July that all salaried GPs and other staff employed in general practice should receive a 6% pay uplift for the current financial year, 2023-24. And earlier this month, an agreement was announced that core funding for general practice would be uplifted to help practices pay for this. The funding that practices received for staff costs was already due to increase by 2.1% for this year under the five-year contract. Um, So extra money has been put in that's intended to give practices the money they need to cover a 6% pay uplift instead. But as we talked about before, no two GP practices are the same. Not all of them spend the same proportion of their income on staff. So delivering an uplift in the form of an increase in funding per patient, which is what's been agreed, works better for some than for others. We reported when the pay uplift was first announced that there would be winners and losers in general practice if the pay was delivered through the global sum, through practice core funding. And that's exactly what's happened. So practices now face a a tough choice between passing on a pay rise that isn't fully funded and taking a big financial hit themselves or not paying the full amount and ending up with an angry workforce or possibly no workforce at all if their staff quit. But one thing that's really interesting here is the fact that the RCN and the BMA appear to be working closely together on this. So rather than blaming GP practices over the risk that nurses won't receive the full pay rise, the RCN is putting the onus on government to put more money in. Something else that we've also written about this week, on the last news episode of the podcast a couple of weeks ago, we did a sort of round robin of what was going on with contract uplifts across the UK for this year, so 2023-24. And the only one we didn't have details about at that point was Wales. Well, we have heard about that now this week, and and it isn't good news, is it? Yeah, in a way, it's, it's a kind of lack of detail again. So contract negotiations in Wales have completely broken down, unfortunately. In England, as we've discussed, GP leaders are not happy with the amount of money provided for staff pay. And in fact, they think the 6% settlement is not enough to help them retain staff anyway. But in Wales, talks have completely collapsed. BMA Wales has been calling for a rescue package for general practice. 18% of GP practices in Wales have closed in the past decade. And the BMA says that that's left GPs with 32% more patients each 
This is on top of some fairly frightening polling by the BMA, which found that 80% of GPs in Wales fear they're unable to provide quality and safe care to patients because they're just under too much pressure from workload as GP numbers fall and demand rises. So as things stand, the BMA says there's a real risk that general practice in Wales could collapse. And it's urged the Welsh Government to to come back to the table with a better offer on funding. But for its part, the Welsh Government says it can't offer more because it's working within a funding framework set by the Westminster Government that gives it no room for manoeuvre. So for now, at least, there's a standoff. But both sides say they are willing to talk. So perhaps that offers some hope, at least. Anyone who's interested in finding out a bit more about what's going on in Wales, do have a little search out on our podcast feed because I did an interview with Dr Gareth Ullman, who is the chair of the BMA Wales GP committee back in July. So you can find that in our podcast feed. Next week, online access to patient records will become a contractual requirement for GP practices in England on the 31st of October. This is something that NHS England and the government have been pushing for for a number of years, but it's been repeatedly delayed due to concerns about patient safety and a number of other issues. So before I ask Nick about the latest story he's written about this, it's probably worth doing a bit of a brief explainer as to where we're at with all of this. So this relates to online access to prospective records, which means anything entered into the patient record from the 31st of October onwards or from the point that the practice turned it on if they did so earlier than that. Practices will have to do this for all of their patients unless they have disabled it in their clinical system for individual people. So these might be patients where there are safeguarding concerns, for example, or where patients have specifically told the practice that they just don't want it turned on. Patients will be able to view their records on the NHS app, the NHS website or or any other patient app used by practices. The BMA and the RCGP have raised numerous concerns about this over the past couple of years and some of these really are still issues. Earlier this month, the BMA issued guidance saying that practices should undertake a data protection impact assessment ahead of this happening. The BMA GP committee has actually done one of these assessments and it identified that as things stand, there are a number of risks for patients and for GPs. The BMA is saying that rather than turning on access for everyone, um, as is envisaged, will happen from the 31st of October. So basically everyone will have access to the records from the 1st of November. The BMA is saying rather than doing this, there should be an opt-in model where patients are properly informed about all of this happening. And then they make a decision about whether or not they want to access the record. The BMA say this would mitigate many of the risks they identified in that assessment they've undertaken. In terms of the specific concerns, the BMA is worried that practices could face a greater risk of a data breach, either by inadvertently releasing third-party data. So that's data or information about someone who isn't the patient, but the patient somehow sees in their record. Or they're also worried about data breaches if someone's records were seen by a partner or a relative of the patient, for example. And obviously, there are huge consequences around data breaches when it comes to personal information. And nothing really is more personal than health information. GPs are the data controllers for their records. And so the practice would really be in the firing line under data protection legislation should anything like this happen. There is software on clinical systems that allows practices to redact third-party information from records, but the BMA says this is really not fit for purpose at the minute and needs to be improved, which they would like to be sorted before all of this goes live. 
There are also real worries that many hospitals and other NHS services are not really aware that any of this is happening. So they may send letters that will automatically get filed into a patient's notes. And so a patient could potentially see a devastating diagnosis or information before their GP has actually had a chance to speak to them about this. Underpinning all of this is the worry that people just don't know is happening. There's been no sort of information campaign about this and patients have very little choice about it. That is really the underlying concern from the BMA. On saying all of that, there are a lot of potential benefits to patients having access to their record. And the BMA isn't against patient access to records. It just wants it to be rolled out more cautiously than is the case at the minute. For example, you know, it could potentially help save practices time if people don't need to call for results. It potentially means patients are better informed about their health. And this is why NHS England and the government are pushing for it to happen. There are also plenty of practices that already provide patients with online access to their records. And many of these practices have done so because they believe there are real benefits to it. So that's the background to it. Nick, We're rapidly approaching this deadline and you wrote a story this week that highlighted some of the most worrying concerns about this really, didn't you? Yeah, the BMA's come together with 20 organisations involved in campaigning around violence against women and girls led by the charity Refuge to highlight one of the biggest concerns about these plans to let patients access their records remotely. The BMA, Refuge and other organisations say that opening up records in this way could put survivors of domestic abuse and victims of stalking at risk. They put out a joint statement warning that perpetrators of domestic abuse may be able to gain access to a survivor's records either by coercing that person to share access or by other means. And as you mentioned, the GP contract requires practices to grant patients access to medical records through the NHS app and other online systems by the 31st of October. And although the change is only meant to open up prospective medical record entries, so that's entries made from the point that access is enabled, some experts in technology-facilitated abuse at Refuge found inconsistencies that can mean some patients can have access to unredacted medical records stretching back 50 years or more. So the statement from the BMA and Refuge and the other organisations says, owing to historical local decisions and patients previously opting in when joining practices, there are inconsistencies in the information available to patients. Some are only able to access new or recent medical records, while others can see as far back as the 1970s, and some have full information, while for others, sensitive information has been redacted. And it it adds that while some survivors may find that they've already been made exempt, uh, or that specific information has been redacted by their surgeries, that won't be the case for everybody. And so BMA leaders have already warned GP practices to carry out a data protection impact assessment, as you mentioned, before switching on remote access to medical records. And they've urged practices to consider an opt-in approach rather than automatically enabling remote access. This adds a, a new dimension and urgency to the risk around remote access to records and right at the point when practices are preparing for the big switch on. And Refuge said this week that it was disappointing and saddening that the government and NHS England hadn't fully addressed these issues before pressing ahead with remote access. 
I think one of the things it's important to mention is that people from the BMA GP committee, they are still very much in discussions with NHS England about this. I mean, there are no signs that there's any likely to be any change in this deadline, but they really are still pushing NHS England for changes to the way this is being rolled out. There has been certain communications coming out from the BMA suggesting there could potentially be some movement at some point. But as things stand, it is all due to happen from next week. One of the things, obviously, we're talking there about survivors of domestic abuse and people in abusive relationships. And I mentioned earlier that one of the reasons practices might turn off access is because there are safeguarding concerns. But obviously, it's impossible for GP practices to know all of their patients who are potentially in abusive or coercive relationships. They may well know a good number of them, but it's unlikely they're going to know everyone. Whereas if they did know that, they might turn off access. Obviously, access is going to be turned on for some people who are in very difficult situations. And obviously, that's going to be a real concern for GPs in case those patients' partners get hold of information that they shouldn't have access to. Ultimately, this goes to the heart of the number one issue that always comes up in any change to access to general practice patient records. I mean, if you go back 20 years or so, you're talking about either a, an envelope in a room at the back of the practice or a server in the back of a practice that was not connected to the internet. In that sort of scenario, the information that the patient gives the GP is very much trapped in that practice and safe in that practice. And that's a, you know, it's a real key part of the GP patient relationship, that element of trust. And so that, as ever, is the big fear with a change like this to access to GP records. We've just got time this week for our good news story. And this week, it's about patient satisfaction with access. According to NHS England, there are some very early signs that patient satisfaction with access is starting to improve. At the Best Practice Conference earlier this month, which we talked about earlier, which me and Nick were both at, NHS England's Primary Care and Community Services National Director, Dr Amanda Doyle, told delegates that a monthly ONS survey showed that there had been a 10 percentage point increase in the number of people who say it is easy or very easy to get in touch with their practice since March this year. She put this down to the very hard work practices have undertaken on access and looking at patient demand in recent months. So those figures are apparently only meaningful on a national level. It's not possible to drill down to specific parts of the country or to practices. But Dr. Doyle did say that every measure across that survey was showing a positive trend. She said that she expected those figures would dip a bit over the winter as demand increased. But she also said that um, she was confident that after that they would be back up again. And in part, that would also be because there's a whole suite of digital tools relating to access that are all aimed at helping practices manage demand that are due to start to become available in January. These were one of the measures mentioned in the Primary Care Access Recovery Plan that was published in May this year. And those tools are likely to be available at ICB level, so there might be slightly different things available in different areas. But Dr Doyle felt confident that those things could also help practices manage increased demand and improve access. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Nick. I'll be back next week when I'm talking to GPs from East Surrey about the work they're doing around health creation and tackling health inequalities. So please do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget you can find all the latest news affecting general practice and access lots of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 